Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Senior Lecturer in Strength and Conditioning at St. Mary's University and Technical Lead at the Royal Ballet, Matt Springham. episode 222 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I'm speaking to Matt Springham and Matt is a lecturer at St Mary's uh, University in Twickenham, London, but also uh, has vast experience working in professional football. So has worked in four professional clubs in the top two divisions in England, as well as working with the FA. And as part of his role at St Mary's, works at the Royal School of Ballet which we discuss lots about in uh, in this episode. So really interesting chat with Matt because he's got such a varied experience um, across his career, whether that be in academia, um, at the ballet, in football, um, and some of the other consulting that he's done, as well as his um, his own private uh, his own private work. So really interesting chat with Matt, uh, which I'm sure you will enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU, who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimize return to play for running base sports predominantly. So unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors. And these sensors can quantify three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. So iMeasureU was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazir and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So iMeasureU works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about iMeasureU, head over to the website which is iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Matt Springham. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning, I am delighted to welcome Matt Springham. So welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me over. Absolute pleasure. So your primary role is Senior Lecturer in S&C and Exercise Physiology at St. Mary's, but I know there's plenty of other things going on in and around that so anyone that doesn't know who you are I just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself education wise and a bit of a, a story of of how you've got to where you are and what's going on at the minute yeah no problem um okay so I guess I guess until the last two years I've, I've principally been known for my applied work in football and we'll get to that in a minute but but starting at the education um education side of things because it probably you know it seems more logical to start there. I, I started my undergrad in 2001, finished in 2004 in sport and exercise science at Hertfordshire. Um, so a relatively generic undergraduate degree in sports science. And then, you know, did, did what I guess a lot, a lot of people do who graduate from sports science degrees. I did, I did about a year in sort of fitness instructing and personal training. 
and managed to pick up a work placement experience at Queen's Park Rangers Football Club in sort of sports science, strength and conditioning. Um, and, you know, very, very quickly realized that that was the arena that I wanted to, you know, to, I guess, commit my career towards. And I was fortunate in that they they put me on a two-year postgraduate qualification at the FA that isn't run anymore, unfortunately. It was called the Football Fitness Trainers Award. And it was a, a two-year postgrad level sports science qualification for sports science graduates that wanted to practice in football. And it was it was it was um, excellent in terms of content, but also in terms of networking, because everyone that was on that course at the time was either, you know, had worked full-time in football, was currently working full-time in football in sort of medical positions, physiotherapy, but, you know, perhaps sort of sports science, strength and conditioning type roles as well. And it was delivered by, you know, some real sort of world-leading guys, you know, guys like Gary Phillips, Tony Strudwick, Sam Erith, Dawn Scott, um, you know, the the that sort of really, really inspired me in terms of, you know, my, my career into, into sports science and football. Um, and over that two years I was working, um, I was, well, I picked up a role as a clinical physiologist in London. So, um, I was doing something sort of exercise physiology, um, based, you know, to keep my sort of scientific hat on. And, um, I guess as a result of networking on that course and building relationships with some of the guys on it, they offered me some squad work with the national teams. Um, so for a few years I was, um, kind of an ad hoc sports scientist, S and C working with national team players, you know, preparing players for European championships and world cups and, um, so on and so forth. And I then started my master's degree after I finished that qualification. So I did a, a master's degree in human performance science at Brunel. Um, and continue to do the sort of part-time work, you know, with the FA and national team squads. And then Queen's Park Rangers offered me a full-time role. So I headed up the, um, I headed up the academy sports science and strength and conditioning department. And I did that for about two years um, and learned a lot from working with academy players and, and working with coaches and managers. And I remember during a, a national team break, I was away with a with an international team, and one of the coaches received a phone call from the um, at the time manager at Watford Football Club, asking if they could have some recommendations for a head of sports science for their first team. And um, you know, living in Watford and, and, and growing up in Watford, you know, and I just happened to be standing next to this guy. It, it seemed to be too you know too good to be true. Anyway, you know, kind of long story short. Um, went for an interview there and lo and behold was offered the sort of head of sports science and S&C role at Watford which I held for three years before going down to Brighton and um, Brighton at the time had a, a really interesting project going on in that they were making a real firm push for the Premier League and building a state-of-the-art training facility which you know I was lucky to have a lot of input in the design of. Um, I stayed there for two years before um, a, a medic and a, a coach that I worked with at Watford were at Brentford and they asked me if I wanted to get back up to London, which I which I did because of you know personal circumstances. And Brentford was great as well because you know I was I was put into an environment where um, you know it was a club that was investing significantly into people. So they started the funding for my PhD and, and took me down that route. Um, and I stayed there for for two enjoyable years before making the transition into academia um, and. As you've already said, I you know I've been at St Mary's now as a senior lecturer in S and C and exercise physiology for just under about a month shy of two years, and that that's a 0.75 academic role and a, and a 0.25 technical lead in strength and conditioning at the Royal Ballet Company in the Royal Ballet School. Um, so that keeps me pretty busy, you know. What with you know that as a full time role and wrapping my PhD up, um, and then on the side I have my own private practice going on as well, which is. Um, you know, a uh, principally works with football players, but uh, strength and conditioning private practice for for you know players that span the non leagues all the way up to Premier League players. Um, and I work collaboratively with you know physiotherapists and doctors that are employed in in professional football in the delivery of that, which is which is great because it it keeps my you know it keeps my applied hat on. Um, you know, in 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 addition to the sort of research and teaching activities I'm doing as well. Excellent. So you're a busy man, very busy man. Yeah, I, I guess so. I think I think my 
I think my partner would argue against that sometimes, but um, yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think I, th- I think so. I mean, look, you know, doing a doing a part time PhD is a big commitment, and doing that around a full time role um, and some private practice work as well. Yeah, it keeps me certainly keeps me busy. Excellent. So, what year was uh, what year was the first job at QPR? In the academy. Oh, wow, uh, 2007-ish, yeah, two, 2007-ish, so yeah, 11, 11, 12 years ago now. Nice, and so I'd just like to have a little chat around the ballet, because it's something mm. that I've not had anyone on who's been in that area, yeah. so to pick your brains and have a little chat around, that would be super. Yeah. So what, what's, just give us a bit of a, um, a kind of broad picture of your role within um, within the Royal Ballet, yeah, no problem. So I, I guess the, the logical starting point here is to is to talk about the current structure there. So you know, if you if you look at what's in place at the ballet, certainly when, when I first went in there, um, it, it's grown somewhat since then. But it's it's about seventeen or eighteen um, staff members deep, um, and that that spans sort of a healthcare support team led by um, a guy called Greg Retter, who is best known for being the sort of head of medical in the intensive rehab unit at the British Olympic Association. And those 17 um, bodies that make up the healthcare team span medical doctors, physiotherapists, performance psychologists, soft tissue therapists, podiatrists, sports nutritionists, Pilates teachers, um, dance rehabilitation coaches, and so on and so forth. Um, and I guess also critically for us within that, we've got um, two full-time strength and conditioning coaches at the Royal Ballet Company and two um, part-time strength and conditioning coaches at the Royal Ballet School. Um, now, the, the full-time guys at the company manage the performance support for about 90 dancers between them. And the guys at the school manage about the same number across two different school sites. So there's there's quite a lot going on there. There's quite a lot of work for those guys to manage. And um, we also, in the last two months, have taken on a full-time PhD student, a, a chap called Joe Shaw, who's um, yeah he's running a, a three-year PhD investigating some of the relationships between um, load markers, so principally, you know, um, accelerometry type markers and um, physical profiles and how these things relate to dance performance and dance injury risk. Um, and my role really is to facilitate um, technical leadership. So um, most of my contact is with the S&C coaches, not necessarily at the delivery end of of, of um coaching the dancers I, I i principally help develop the coaches and i guess you know like any any line manager or, t- or technical lead the, my primary role there is to identify skills gaps and facilitate knowledge and skills development in in those guys um making sure that they're engaging with the technology that's in place in the departments so of things like linear encoders accelerometers force platforms um and yeah you using that data to inform their practice so not, not that I would ever want to breed a robotic strength and conditioning coach that, you know, programs purely off the, the back of numbers, but um, certainly using, um, you know, an, an, objective, um, an objective approach and, and interacting with some of those technologies to inform what they're doing. Um, and, you know, quite, quite lucky in, or very lucky in that, you know, the guys on the ground there, Adam Machusi, Gregor Rosenkranz, Nile McSweeney, Matt Lamarck, they're, they're really competent coaches, uh, really competent sports scientists. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a nice challenge for me to, uh, to try and drive those, those guys forward. Um, we've invested a lot of time in soft skills development. So dance is quite unique in that um, you've got this – I wouldn't call it strange because it's nice in many respects, but you've got this interesting environment where you've got these kind of left brain sports scientists or strength and conditioning coaches that need to interact with these real sort of right brain artists, these um, creative dancers and dance teachers. And, and there's a real challenge to communicate effectively with those people and successfully put information into context for them. So, a lot of time um, or a lot of our development time has been focused on um, kind of organizational psychology. So um, facilitating an improved understanding of 
of um, how creatives think perhaps and how we might manipulate some of the messages that we offer them in order to get a better adherence to their programming and their um, long-term adherence to to strength conditioning and their, enga- their engagement with the guys in the gym, really, which, you, you know, it's, it's a barrier that you don't really have to face so much in professional sport in my experience is that the people tend to be similar people, um, whereas this is a... Um, a really interesting environment because it's um you know it's this one kind of wave of science meeting head on with sort of one very strong wave of wave of artistic staff and and, and dancers can you give us a sorry to interrupt Matt, sorry. can you give us any examples of of what how things have changed based on the conversations you've had or you know yeah. interpretation of, of from the from the dancer side of what how things have changed for them yeah, well, I, I guess I guess you know, in, t- in terms of how how we've had success, I, th- I think you know, there's probably some synergy with what you see in sport. So, you know, um, the success stories of rehabilitation that that come through, and um, you know, there's there's a certain level of um, noise that gets created, um, you know, by those success stories amongst the dancers. So suddenly, you know, it sparks up a you know a heightened level of interest around well. What are those guys doing in the gym? You know, what are the S and C coaches delivering to guys in the gym that's you know improving someone's return from injury or, or making them more robust around the arena? You know, those, those sorts of things. Um, but in terms of in terms of um, you know the direct translation between the soft skills development and and strength conditioning performance, I, I think it's just about understanding how to communicate quite complex information in terms of the maybe the intricacies of a force platform um, piece of data to um, a dancer um, and, you know, knowing how much information is enough information or what type of information is the correct amount of information or type of information is, is, is I, I guess, what we've been investing some time in. Um, we, we, wrote a, um, we wrote about an eight-hour soft skills development course using an organizational psychologist to just help us understand, you know, different ways of communicating to different types of people. And, and certainly, you know, although it's, although it's primarily subjective, I would argue that um, we've seen um, maybe a heightened level of, or, or a greater level of compliancy, a greater level of interest in, in what the guys in the gym are delivering and doing and the rationale behind what, what they're trying to do. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I, I walked into the, I walked into the S&C room on day one, 18 months ago. I mean, this was day one for me, but it was about day, you know, it was about month six of the program. And there was re- relatively little dialogue between the coaches and the dancers regarding programming or, or data collection and so on and so forth. And then I walked into the room a couple of days before Christmas, a couple of weeks ago. And in the space of 10 minutes, I noted three dancers that approached one of our S&C coaches and, and requested a force platform analysis well, test, um, which, you know, it, it, it just simply wouldn't have happened 12 months ago. And that's just basically down to the guys on the ground forging really good relationships with the dancers, um, obtaining a good level of, of trust from them by demonstrating a you know, good level of empathy and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, I guess that's the, that's the long-term picture of what we're doing. So you've mentioned force plates a couple of times and mm. the, the use that they have uh, with dancers. Just give, give a bit of a detail on what they're actually informing and why the dancers have bought into it so much that they're requesting tests. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's obviously a, a, a jump-dominant sport, right? So, um, you know, to, to give you an idea of um, the, the training demands of a, of a professional dancer, um, they will train anywhere between six or eight hours a day, which will seem completely alien to anyone that's working in, you know, field sports who typically train between one and three, one and three, maybe one and four hours a day. So six to eight hours um, of technical or physical work um, per day, you know, and that that can extend up to ten to twelve hours of of physical work if there's a performance that evening, which you know, which there is sort of three perhaps four times a week for a lot of those guys. Um, and then, you know, I guess the, 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 the more, you know, perhaps scary part of this is that, um, you know, per hour, these guys might jump anywhere between 20 and 180 times 
um, you know, across a, an hour's session. So if you consider that they're doing, you know, perhaps six, perhaps eight 60 minute sessions per day, that can translate anywhere up to four to 5,000 jumps and landings per week. And so, you know, the, the, the consequences of that are a significant level of neuromuscular load um, and uh, neuromuscular fatigue. Um, and because a lot of the choreography that's in, in place biases in terms of rotation in specific directions, you know, it's not a, it's not an open skill as such like sport. It's not, you know, movement isn't random. Everything's choreographed. And so a lot of the rotations are biased in specific duration at uh, specific directions. And, you know, that can give rise to a level of asymmetry, both in terms of, um, function, but also in terms of fatigue, and, um, yeah, we, we invest, you know, a fair amount of time, um, in, in monitoring those aspects. So neuromuscular performance and neuromuscular fatigue, um, and investigating some of those things, you know, like loading rate, um, but also asymmetry, you know, th th those bits and pieces that, you know, where we think we can have some, um, um, well, where we feel that we can have a level of intervention to improve, um, I guess functioning in those guys. Nice. So, so the work in the gym that these that obviously your your coaches are facilitating. I know it's hard to kind of paint a paint a picture, but what does that look like in terms of their in terms of the structure, in terms of fitting in and around the the various number of sessions they've got when they're actually performing. Just want to paint a little bit of a picture, mm. certainly for me, because I've just got zero idea of what goes on, of what goes on, which is great because I'm guessing others others are, are similar who are listening as well. Yeah. Um, well, I guess, you know, the, 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 if, if, you, if you consider a, a team sport where typically, you know, players or athletes will arrive at, say, half past nine in the morning, they might do – you know, they might have breakfast together, you know, they might do some activation work together, then they'll go out collectively to do a group-based warm-up um, and they will then do their group-based session and there might be some supplementary extra technical work at the end of those sessions and perhaps some strengthening, well, strength work at the, at the, um, in the afternoon or following that football session. And they typically do those things collectively. The, the primary dis difference with dance is that, um, they have these long days so that, so they're in for six to eight hours on their average training day. And, you know, as I said, 10 to 12 hours if they're on a performance day, but the, the real challenge to the S and C coaches on the ground is that every single one of the 90 dancers, um, at the company has their own individual timetable where they are responsible for, um, finding windows for S and C work. So, um, it, it, it lacks the consistent level of um, S and C lacks the consistent level of availability with dancers, you know, and in the same way that football players and rugby players and, and so on and so forth in team sports are always in flux in terms of fitness and fatigue. It's exactly the same in dance. And you might have a scenario where you've got a dancer that's preparing for three or four different shows at the same time. And, um, and, you know, has all of the other technical aspects that they need to prepare for. And um, as a result of that are, you know, um, at a very high, high level of fatigue, if I'm honest, almost constantly, you know, and it's a real challenge trying to accommodate strength work into their, into their program. Um, but, you know, I, th I think we do it quite well. I think, you know, as, as relationships have grown with dancers and um, they've seen the, um, the value of following the strength conditioning program and it's in place. Um, you know, I, I, I think that they've, they've generally been more willing to find that time. It's, it's unlike sport in that there's an external pressure from a manager or a coach to get players in the gym. You know, these are independently um, employed professionals that don't have any external pressure to follow a strength conditioning program. It's, it's, it's um, the amount that they do is entirely up to them. And we've seen adherence um, grow significantly over the last 18 months, you know, in terms of hours of strength conditioning programming delivery per week. And in terms of what it looks like, you know, by, by virtue of those constraints, um, I'm sure you can imagine that, you know, we, we try to 
we try to offer programming where we get most bang for our buck. You know, we, we try to offer um, time efficient programming. And because of the aesthetic demands of, of, of ballet, we try to offer principally neuromuscular adaptation. So we either lift uh, typically relatively light pretty quickly or we lift very heavy um, but you know don't do a great deal of volume and then around that we'll, we'll have you know as as any um, as any strength initiating program will we'll have like the the more kind of individual um, individualized components as, as well which will be partly determined by their profiling data and partly determined by um, you know, the injury epidemiology of dance and, and so on and so forth. That's really interesting, the fact that you're coming from, oh, and there's plenty, out, plenty of people out there who are coming from that team sport environment when they've got a manager telling them what to do, they've got an S&C coach telling them what to do. Hopefully both are aligning to get that person to do what's best for the team and for the club to this situation where you've got independently contracted people who don't have to be there. It's almost that... It's almost private sector coaching. They can say, I, I, I want to work with you. I'm going to turn up today. Or actually, no, I'm not going to because I have the power to do that because I'm not part of this bigger, I'm part of this bigger thing, but contractually, I'm a, I'm a contractor. I can do what I want. That's a really interesting scenario and how you may deal with that difference than compared to the, the team environment. Yeah, I mean, again, and this and this is why we we've put so much stock in terms of developing soft skills in our coaches is because our our success as S and C coaches because we've got you know um, we've got you know effectively no one standing next to these guys and, and making them go in the S and C room if you like you know our our success is purely governed by our capacity to build trust and rapport with these guys and you know that that comes back to some extent to demonstrate in value. Um, but it also comes back to, you know, building trust and relationships, you know, and, um, and knowing how to communicate with, um, you know, from a, from a, I guess, a, a raw S and C coach or a raw sports science, sports scientist perspective, probably quite an alien population, you know, in, in terms of these, um, real creative types, you know, and, um, like like anything, you know, when 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 strength and conditioning first started in football, that probably preceded my time in football by you know a few years, I guess. And when sports science really kicked off in in football, maybe in the early to mid two thousands, two thousand and four, maybe two thousand and five, there was a lot of resistance, you know. And and this is no different, you know. That, that there initially was a lot of resistance by the dancers that maybe were approaching the end of their careers and. Um, and had had successful careers. Um, and as those professionals have, have moved out of the performance end of ballet, um, there's a new wave of um, performers coming from the school which have had access to strength and conditioning programming for a number of years now. And it's second nature to those guys. And it's, it's, it's not only something that they, um, it's not only a support service that they um that they interact well with. It's a, it's a support service that they almost demand, you know, that that's the sort of the, that's the, um, certainly the way that, or, or the way that I've read um, the environment over the last 18 months. So as always, just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Matt. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more around Matt's PhD. So assessing load uh, longitudinally across a football season, across soccer season. So really interesting chat um, in part two. So in part two, we also discuss more about the lessons that he's learned working across four clubs and the FA, key things he's taken away uh, and learned and he's put into practice in his, uh, in his current roles, the ballet, and uh, his other consulting work. So really interesting part two to hopefully complement what we discussed in part one. But just before we do get into part two, we just want to say a massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAF model analyzes uh, a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates 
fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ReadyBand from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So also sponsoring today's podcast is St. Mary's University. So St. Mary's is internationally renowned as a leader in strength and condition education, and it was the first UK institution to offer an undergraduate degree in strength and conditioning. And its master's program, which I have been through personally and would highly recommend, was the first part-time uh, distance learning strength and conditioning course in the UK. And it's the emphasis on the development of coaching skills and relevance of theory to practice, which makes St. Mary's stand out from the other courses that are out there. So both uh, undergraduate and postgraduate courses are delivered in the purpose-built state-of-the-art performance education centre and anyone that's been to St Mary's will know what a fantastic uh, facility that is and is taught by staff that are highly experienced coaches and expert sports scientists. And one thing that students are really on the lookout for now is universities links with uh, professional sport and that's definitely something that St Mary's has with their links with multiple football clubs across London in Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Fulham, but also uh, London Irish in rugby and Sutton Tennis Academy. They also embed students within the Royal Ballet Company and Royal Ballet, Royal Ballet School in London. And this obviously helps students top saying uh, necessary coaching experience to maximize their chances of getting employment post graduation. So in addition to the strength and conditioning courses, they offer both undergraduate and postgraduate programs in physiology and sports rehab. But if you're interested in getting to know more about the course at St. Mary's, make sure you visit their website, uh, which is stmarys.ac.uk forward slash courses. So I'd like to move on to probably more of your into your past with regards to what you working in football, but also relatively present in the article that you wrote for the UKSCA. Mm-hmm. So that was around gaining employment and gaining the skills um, to work in football. That obviously that got a lot of attention because things of that nature, obviously well written as you you and the guys did um, generally do. But it'd just be great to kind of communicate what you guys, why you guys felt that that article was necessary. Mm. And for anyone that hasn't read it, to give us a bit of a, an insight into your thoughts around getting the skills to get a job in, in football or soccer, if you're not English. Yeah, let's, let's, call, it, let's call it football. Football is football. <laughs> um, yeah. Is football. Um, yeah, okay. So... Um, the, the reason I the reason I, I felt it was, it was important. I mean, it, a, a couple of things really. I, I remember I remember being sat at the UKCA conference two or three years ago now, and I, I listened to Des Ryan give a, a really nice keynote presentation um, around the um, sports science and strength conditioning programming that was going on at you know the Arsenal Academy, and he. I think summarized his keynote presentation with some um, messages to universities I, I would classify it as. And one of the messages that he offered was that um, employment graduates, uh, sorry, um, candidates that were, that were going to Arsenal for um, employment interviews were generally underskilled in terms of their capacity to deliver basic sessions. So things like warm up, speed sessions, endurance sessions in, in a football cohort. And it, you know, it really, it really sparked my interest because, you know, I'd, I'd recently made a, a transition the other way. You know, I'd moved from full-time work in professional football to full-time work in academia. And I almost, you know, although arguably unjustly, I almost felt partly responsible for this. And I thought, well, you know, I, I've actually experienced some of this stuff myself as well. You know, I've, I've experienced, you know, graduates that have come into, you know, come into employment interviews and, not being able to demonstrate some of the fundamental skills that they would, you know, require to even start that role, and and also, 
if I'm honest, quite large knowledge gaps, particularly applied knowledge gaps as well. And, you know, it, it kind of got me thinking. I thought, okay, well, you know, if I, if I was to, you know, get a blank piece of paper and write down what a degree would look like, you know, what, what are the skills that I would want my graduates to have to be employable at the end of three years? And I felt that, you know, I reflected on our own degree programs at St. Mary's, you know, what I've been exposed to on our undergrad and master's programs and so on and so forth, and, and my own experiences as well from when I was in academia. And um, I, I kind of quickly realized, well, in, in my mind, one of, one of the things that's, and this, you know, this is a, a, across the country, I, I feel, you know, certainly from the graduates that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to many, you know, I, I, would, I would imagine that I've recruited around 30 people into professional football over the years. One of the um, areas that is often underdeveloped and, and maybe naturally because there's there's not always the opportunity to deliver this work at um at university is this the side of soft skill um um or, or soft skills you know so capacity to communicate uh, capacity to communicate verbally non-verbally uh, put things into context you know translate complex information into um you know or, or convey that to a to a uh, an audience appropriately you know that might have different levels of understanding of this information than you and so I, I just figured it, it was it was worthwhile writing a piece on you know and and um you know in that paper we offered um we offered a pathway of formal learning so you know this the natural progression from undergraduate to master's degree to um, different accreditations, postgraduate accreditations that you need to work as a strength coach or, or sports scientist or both. You know, football, football in particular, um, until relatively recently, you, you've almost needed to be um, an excellent generalist, all right? So you've needed to understand the sports science work. You've needed to understand strength and conditioning programming. And only in the last maybe five to 10 years of, you know, I, I guess real specialist roles evolved. So, you know, you, you're now going to football clubs and you'll see a sports scientist that only analyzes GPS data um, or analyzes computerized tracking data from games. And you'll see separate practitioners that deliver rehabilitation and deliver squad programming and deliver on-field programming, maybe metabolic work or, or so on and so forth. Um, and so... Um, yeah, we, we felt that it was um, um, it was required to you know highlight some of the uh, well, a, a formal technical pathway, and then you know well, how do I also develop these these sort of broader communicative skills that that we've mentioned, and you can only really develop those in industry, I guess. But what we also were keen to do was offer universities some. Um, pedagogical steering in terms of how they might start to develop those skills in their undergraduates. So maybe using some, you know, problem solving tasks in assessments, maybe using some conflicting data that you see in professional football, um, maybe using, you know, time sensitive um, or, or trying to replicate high pressure environments in assessments if they're not already high pressure enough. But what I mean by that is maybe um, using, um, other practitioners in assessments, things like medical doctors, physiotherapists, coaches, managers, um, you know, that, that you need to be able to communicate with on the ground in work, um, but just offering some level of exposure to uh, maybe learn to cope with that or, or, or understand its importance across degree programs. So one thing that in my experience, and I don't know if this is similar to you, People see people in football see football as uh, football's different. Yeah, but you can do that in rugby. But football's different. Is is that something that has made or made that article more difficult because a lot of people do see football as different for whatever reason? Um, well, I guess I guess I can only really communicate. I can only really comment on 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 football having not worked in rugby. But certainly, you know, some of the comments that we got. Um, on social media were well that you know that's that's pretty much the the skill set for any snc coach you know and ev everyone needs to needs to be able to communicate with 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 athletes and coaches and managers but i guess the i guess from my observation anyway at least you know not not coming from other sport but certainly communicating this with coaches that have is that 
Um, football, I would argue, like no other environment, um, operates under severe time constraints. Um, you know, there's a real high frequency of competition. Um, there's a, there's often a, in, particularly in first team environments, um, a high level of pressure and a high level of exposure that come hand in hand with that as well. You're dealing with, you know, multi, multi million pound assets and you're being asked to make, um, very reactive decisions on a, on a daily basis. Um, and you're also required not only to, to, to communicate frequently with the athlete, but you're also required to communicate frequently with um, coaches, managers, um, medical staff, but also often executives that have, you know, interest in these things as well for a whole number of reasons, be it contractual reasons and, you know, performance reasons, so on and so forth. Um, and so, um, you know, again, I, I can only really comment from my experience in football, but but from speaking with practitioners that work in other sports, that there doesn't seem to be that broader spectrum of relationship building that, that's necessarily required, in, and and certainly in a in an environment that's such high pressure. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a UKSC article, and it came out in their journal. But have you shared it anywhere? Is any of the co-authors shared it anywhere that people can? Freely access? Uh, it's available on, on ResearchGate. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think I've put it on my ResearchGate page yet, but I, but I certainly will do after this. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you yeah if you if you logged into the UKCA website, um, you you can download those as PDFs. But um, but I I will I will um, put it on my ResearchGate page as well. Excellent. So let's move on to your PhD. So let's just give us a bit of an, a broad overview of of the general area, and then that'll hopefully allow us to dive a little bit deeper and and um, give people a bit more insight into what you're doing. Yeah. Okay. So so I guess you know from working in football, I you know I'd had a um, for a number of years, I, I I noticed this trend, you know, and and again, you know, there's there's a lot of anecdotal evidence for this, but but not much kind of real published data to support this but you, you speak to sport sports scientists perhaps in in professional football and um they will often tell you that you know across the season um at an individual level or a collective level um they noted a longitudinal decline in physical performance during match play um in certain parameters and i, I just became interested in in this and some of the mechanisms underpinning um, the, the why as to why does that occur and if you if you do a literature search on the demands of football or um, you know some of the um, kinetics of you know response to load markers be it slivery markers hormonal markers neuromuscular fatigue markers and so on and so forth there's a lot of data to demonstrate not only you know how far players run in games but also the time course of, of return to baseline in those markers following match play um, and I guess because there's so much data, there's this kind of presumption that, that, that those findings hold true for the whole duration of a season. And um, it, it just fundamentally might not be the case. You know, we, we found data that's demonstrated significant longitudinal declines in physical performance metrics over the course of a season. So things like sprint distance, um, high-speed running, um, declines significantly towards the end of, or, or is lower, significantly lower towards the end of the season in a in a um, um, in a in a period towards the end of the season, and it is at periods towards the beginning of or middle of the season. And we think that there are some um, drivers of that that we're investigating. So you know what what is causing this progressive decline in physical performance across the season, and and that really is the is the essence of of our research. So is there any, any assumptions that you can make already in terms of answering that question? Yeah, well, I, I guess, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a complex one because if you look at how football teams operate, um, you have multiple positions, each with different physical demands during match play. And then alongside that, you, you also have um, different training demands. So, so by virtue of playing in different positions, um, players will often have 
you know, very different training data across the positions. And so because of that, players um, accumulate load at very different rates across the season. And um, some of the relationships that we're investigating are whether or not um, the rate of decline in physical performance is um, is related to the amount of load that players accumulate across the season. So, for example, the number of accelerations, decelerations, or their meterage in things like sprint distance and high-speed running, the rate at which they accumulate those load markers and its effect on physical performance decline across the season. Um, and then, and then, you know, also, I guess, alongside that, investigating some of the physiological responses to, to that change. So what happens from a hormonal perspective? So for, for two, two consecutive seasons in a, in a single um, team in the English Championship, we collected uh, biweekly salivary hormones, so testosterone, cortisol, and TC ratio, um, and salivary immune markers, so salivary IJ and alpha amylase. We did bi-weekly bi neuromuscular fatigue tests, so um, just some basic counter-movement jump data. Um, we collected daily well-being assessments, so just a five-point well-being questionnaire. And then um, we collected training load data and match load data. So we had um, daily GPS and um, computerized tracking data from in-games. And I guess, yeah, in a, in a nutshell, exploring some of those relationships between, you know, what's happening longitudinally to performance, but then what are the physiological changes that are um, accompanying those changes? Not necessarily responsible for or driving, you know, we're not making that assumption yet, but what are the um, physiological changes that are, that are um, accompanying some of those physical changes in performance? Because if we can, if we can answer that question, then it might, it might allow us to put more stock into the monitoring variables that we, um, that we um, take note of, um, you know, both both from a, a physiological monitoring perspective and from a load monitoring perspective. You know, if you look at interestingly, if you look at markers like total distance over the course of a season, it tends to it te so total distance completed during match play across all positions, it tends to stay relatively constant. Um, but then, if you look at some of the the kind of higher threshold metrics, so high speed running, sprint distance perhaps you see significant declines. And um, yeah, I, I guess getting into the weeds of, um, of the drivers behind those changes. Is there, is there any difference? I mean, you might have mentioned it at the start, I might have missed it, but is there any differences within positions with really the decline of the um, physical performance across a season? Are you seeing changes um, different? Yeah, in, in short, yes. I mean, our, our, our data is suggesting a couple of things. It, it's suggesting that players, well, we, we believe that our data is telling us a couple of things. We believe that players that have maybe a lesser physical capacity at the beginning of the season and players that are exposed to the highest volumes of high-intensity work across the season are the players that are more susceptible to longitudinal changes in, in match play performance. And that that tends to make sense, right? So, if you look at if you look at um, some of Tim Gabbert's work, um, you know, he typically demonstrates that you know players that players that have a high level of chronic load or or you know a high level of fitness tend to be more robust against injury, um, you know, it, across a number of sports, and you know. We think we might be seeing a similar effect in in football. So players, and and this will sound very obvious, you know, but players that have a greater physical capacity at the beginning of the season tend to have a slower rate of decline in physical performance across the season. But then also, um, regardless of physical capacity, um, the playing positions that are associated with higher high intensity loading during games tend to have the highest rate of decline in physical performance across the season. So you're looking at your, your full-backs, just thinking of... Yeah, uh, wide defenders, wide midfield players, yeah. central midfield players. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a very, you know, that, that's, a, that's a very generic statement, you know, because 
what's required of a wide defender or wide midfield player or central midfield player in one team could be very different to the next. But certainly, oh certainly in the population that or, or the cohort that we investigated, um, that's the trend that that we've found. Um, yeah, and we, we've got a, we've got a couple of studies under review at the moment, just just um, just trying to demonstrate that data. Excellent, and they'll be. And what kind of timeline we're looking at for them? You know, uh, well, <laughs> hopefully, yeah. Yeah, how long's a piece of string? Terrible hope, question. Hope, hopefully, hope, hopefully, um, we'll have a response in the next couple of months. I mean, you know, pu- publishing is becoming harder and harder, right? Um, there's there's a huge volume of work that's being sent to you know journals every day, and um, the, the time frame of the turnaround of this stuff's increased exponentially in the last few years. Um, but certainly in the next few months, I'd expect to see, well, I would, I would hope that some of this data would be available in the public domain. Um, um, yeah. Cool. Happy days. Well, when that goes out, are you, are you happy to be sharing it on Twitter? Is that something that you're going to do as well as yeah. uh, all other things? Are you a, a Twitter man? For sharing stuff yeah I'm, I'm, I'm a twitter man my, my twitter handle is at matt springham in one word um and I, I have a research gate profile although i've been um very very slow in updating that I, I i will get back on top of that after after recording this um but yeah i'll make sure that those bits and pieces are available on, on research gate and i'll provide links where, where necessary and other social media excellent and you got to at matt springham before the other thousands and thousands of at Matt Springham's. So that's right. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> it always makes me laugh when you, someone gets the full name. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. You got in early doors and yeah. gets everyone else off like it. For, fortunate or unfortunate. The, the, the benefit is that, is that it's unique. The, the, the downfall is that um, people spell your name wrong all the time. Oh. <laughs> well, Matt, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And um, thanks for giving up your time. And I will chat to you soon. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Matt. So massive thanks to Matt for giving up his time. Really appreciate it, as always, for guests coming on and giving up their time to discuss their Uh, experience and share some of their knowledge and wisdom so also big thanks to fatigue science to hawking dynamics i measure you and of course st mary's university for sponsoring this episode today so some cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and i will speak to you next week